0: Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Be to God. Lord, would you help us to see and to know, to understand, and to love you this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, we're kind of on this second week of um, exploring discipleship and what discipleship means. Last week we talked about the goal. The goal of discipleship is to live a life freed and empowered to love God, which means all of the stuff that holds us back. So, the way the writer of Hebrews uh, talks about it is Uh, the sin that so easily entangles, right? It's like you're running through a field and that stuff that gets just wrapped around your legs um, as you're running through that field, that's the sin that so easily entangles. It keeps you from running, right? Um, And we want to be freed and empowered, so we're freed by removing all of that, we might say, vice, all that stuff that gets in the way. But we're also empowered by growing in virtue. We're empowered by actually growing in the ability to do the things that allow us to love God, right? So that's the goal, that kind of life. Now, goals are great to have. Um, I've been coaching Emmaus' soccer, and so far we're 3-0. and um, We somehow ended up with, like, the three best strikers on, in the entire league on our team, uh, and so we're often having to pull them out because it would be 8 9 nothing. Uh, if we if we didn't. So what I'm saying is goals are really nice. Um, I've been experiencing what it's like to get a few goals in the last week. Uh, but goals aren't all of it. Goals aren't the whole journey. Goals aren't the whole game. right? And so today we want to talk about not just the goal of where we're going, but also kind of a vision. How do we actually get there on a day-to-day level? And so... Um, <coughs> The vision, at least in this model, uh, is that every disciple's proper home is the household of God. Every disciple's proper home is the household of God. And there's a passage of scripture that I want to read to you, which is not any of the passages we read uh, earlier, Um, but I want to kind of open this up. So this is actually from John chapter 14. And and John chapter 14 is an interesting little piece of scripture because it's a piece that we know, we read it actually a lot at funerals, but when you put it in context, all of a sudden some things start to pop out. So the thing you have to know if you're going to read John chapter 14 well is John chapter 13. And, And what happens in 13 is Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room and he does a really confusing and kind of disorienting thing for them. Anybody know? He washes their feet. Yes, somebody else, somebody said that under their breath. Okay, good. You do not get credit for it. Jim, you get credit for it. All right, plus 20. Yes, he washes their feet, which is disconcerting if you're a disciple because you need your leader to lead. And here you are in this moment of real threat, and your leader starts serving. Here you are in this moment of fear. Remember, they are walking right into the jaws of, Of the monster. They're walking into Jerusalem during Passover. They know they're in danger. And Jesus, instead of standing up and says, don't worry, guys, I have all the lightning bolts and the angel armies and everything that we're going to need in order to get through this, he takes off his outer cloak and he bends down and he washes their feet. And then not only does he wash their feet, he stands up and says, oh, and by the way, one of you is going to betray me right? It's not Peter. Worse than Peter, it's Judas, right? And so then they're all looking at each other. but They don't know who, but one of you is going to betray me. So now, not only is our leader not quite acting the way that we want a leader to act, he obviously didn't read the books or get a master's in leadership. Um, He's doing kind of weird things and somebody is going to betray us. And then he says, and by the way, Peter, who's kind of been the leader among them, you are going to deny me three times. So he sort of shakes. You can understand their little group of 12 plus Jesus has really kind of had the ground shaken underneath them. And then in this sort of moment of uncertainty, he turns to them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas, wonderful Thomas, of course, speaks up and says, "Uh, "Excuse me, I do not know the way to where you're going. I would love if you would tell me the way where you're going." Uh, And this is Jesus' famous, "I am the way." and the truth. So in the middle of all of this shaking, this uncertainty, everything kind of falling apart, people being traitors and denying and just collapse, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. And then I am going to prepare a place for you. You have a home that is not in this Home really is a place of security and confidence. Right? And what we say in the vision here is that every disciple's true home is the household of God. I was working in a coffee shop this week, and my coffee cup told me that according to Pete's, home is where your beans are delivered. Okay? Um, <laughs> I tell you, it is not so. (laughs) Your true home is not where your coffee beans are delivered. Home is where you are at home with God. And and home is kind of an interesting idea. And it's an idea that has shifted over the years. Um, If you just look back over the past few decades, anybody know the, the most popular sitcom of the 1980s? Let me take a stab at it. Yeah, the Cosby Show, right? A family at home, right? Cosby is, I mean, you know, recent news aside, uh, it's kind of this this wholesome idea of, of a family at home figuring out how to do life together, right? How do we help each other be our best? Most popular shows, two shows of the 90s, Seinfeld and Friends right? Single, unattached adults, still the primary location is their home, right? It's their apartment in New York, but, but instead of a family that's kind of going somewhere, you get, oh, also family ties and things like that from the '80s, Golden Girls, right? But instead of a family that's kind of going somewhere, you get single, unattached adults who are kind of trying to figure out how to do it. And really, it's this idea of a chosen family, especially in friends. That my family is not my biological family. If you're George Costanza, your biological family, or Ross and Monica, your biological family is kind of the source of all of your neuroses and your problems. Right? Your chosen family is where it's at. It's your friends who stand by you. Right? It's your friends who are going to be with you, who won't abandon you. And you move into the 2000s, it's the office. In the office, the early 2000s and into the teens, they don't even have homes. <laughs> you don't even see these adults in their homes. Instead, what do you find? They're looking for intimacy at work. Michael Scott and a stapler, yes, <laughs> it's in the jello, right? Michael Scott is the boss, but he really thinks of himself as like the fun dad, right? And he sees this whole office as a family. What's the point? Our culture, just looking at sitcoms, our culture has sort of slowly shifted away from home as a place that can be relied on, right? As a place that can be trusted. Homes are, are more and more places that are uncertain and unsure and maybe even dangerous. And You've got to find intimacy somewhere else. And so what we find is a culture that really is kind of rootless and desperate and looking for some kind of intimacy and willing to go almost anywhere, even work, to find it. And yet the Christian story has a different focus. We read it today in Revelation as we get toward the end. And what do we see? We see heaven and earth becoming one. We see God, it says it explicitly, makes his dwelling with us. God in Eden, God in the Torah, in Moses with the tabernacle, God in the Incarnation, and then God in Revelation 20 makes his home with his people. Revelation 21, rather. Makes his home with his people. We are built to long for God to be our home. And to some extent, none of us ever find it on this earth. No matter how good your family is, no matter how open and welcoming your family is, there's always something that could be better because we are built for the kind of eternal heavenly home That is God's presence. And so we live in this kind of in-between. But the church witnesses to this thing that is eternal, this thing that is out there. We are created to reach for that kind of infinity, for that kind of eternity. And the church has two ways, historically, of kind of addressing this. And and I'd be interested uh, for you to kind of think about which of these fits you best. So a, a pastor on our district up in Lincoln actually wrote a book called Stability. Um, it's a great little book. I I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and <coughs> he tells the story of going out to a um, to a Benedictine monastery. And if you don't know, uh, Benedict uh, was a guy from the 5600s, six hundreds, right in Italy, and and he kind of wrote this rule this this way of life for these monks. And here's the thing that you do if you're if you're a monk in the Benedictine way. You take a vow, you take a few other vows, but you take a vow that you're not going to move. You're not going to leave. It's a vow of stability that you promise with your whole life that you're not leaving this place. That whatever happens, earthquake or fire or or windstorm or somebody dying or plague or the economy crashing or the economy going great and maybe there's more economic opportunity over there, like the, all of these kinds of things. Whatever happens, you're going to stick it out. You're stable. You're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. Rooted and unmoving. And there is this kind of wisdom in that Benedictine understanding that I don't know if you've ever gone to the other side because the grass looked greener, All right? And you know what happens when you go to the when the grass is greener on the other side? Yeah, right? Because when you go to the other side, you take yourself. And so often we leave the place that we are thinking that we're going to leave our problems, and instead we discover that our problems come with us. And the the wisdom in that Benedictine spirituality, that Benedictine approach to the world is to say You just wait. God is everywhere. If you don't see him where you are, just wait. The problem is you, not God. Stick it out. Let the roots go down. Be patient. And God will slowly but surely chip away at the unholiness. God will slowly but surely make things whole, help you to see it help you to respond well, help you realize that the people that are surrounding you are not the problem, your response to them is. Nate, Pastor Nate, up in Lincoln, in his book says, what we need to learn from Benedict as churches is not to try to say, boy, we could sure grow if we move to the other side of the street. Or there's a housing development, you know, on the other side of town, and maybe if we just." picked up and moved over there, all of a sudden everybody would flood in. He says, no, we as a people, as a church, need to just learn to love our communities where we are. And it doesn't mean that we don't grow. It doesn't mean that we don't change. It doesn't mean that we idolize sameness, right? But it does mean that we stick it out and we love people in the difficulty and the challenge learning maybe even to love our neighbors, and maybe even if God intervenes to love ourselves. right? The other way that the church... So that's one way, the Benedictine way. The other way that the church has done this is totally the opposite. (laughs) It's the Franciscan way. You know St. Francis, he's preaching to birds and all this kind of thing? And the Franciscan way is never to own anything and never to stay anywhere too long. Every two or three years, if you're a Franciscan friar... They pick you up and move you somewhere else because they don't want you to get attached. Why? Because God is everywhere. And if you get stuck in one place, you might only think that God is here and not realize that he's also over there. Right? And so the Franciscan way is to give up everything you had. It's called a wandering or a mendicant way, this kind of wandering poverty where you just, I'm going to walk down to Stockton and trust God's going to be there and somehow provide for me, right? And, and, and there's something beautiful and wonderful about that kind of Franciscan approach to the world. that just take things lightly, and I almost want to say floats on the top, not because it doesn't want to go deep, but because it knows that God is so transcendent, <laughs> and it trusts so deeply that God is in each and every place. By never belonging to any place or anything, the Franciscan knows that he can only belong to God. Right? So here's the question. Which one are you? I think most of us, honestly, need to be Benedictines. If I had to pick one. Most of us need to be people who stick it out. right, And who stick it out through the long, difficult, dark night. But I don't want to rule out the possibility that some of us are Franciscans. So I talk about both just because I don't want anybody to you know, I'm, I'm very inclusive. Uh, I don't want anybody to kind of get this sense. Right. But, but why do I bring that up? Because both of these affirm that the disciples' true home is not in this world. The disciples' true home is in God. Whether we're sticking it out and and sticking with the hard days so that we can trust that God is going to renew this creation, or whether we're kind of up here on top, going from place to place to place because we trust that God is going to renew all of this creation. The household of God is the church. This household of God that we're talking about, this home that we all long for, is the church. And that might be hard for some of us to hear because it kind of challenges some of our theology. Oftentimes the theology that we have received kind of downplays the church. But Paul in in 1 Timothy, what, what Lois read for us today, says exactly that that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth you know what a buttress is right if you look at an old cathedral <laughs> daves yeah daves giggling a little too much over there yeah if you look at an old cathedral like over in france or something they've got these big tall stone walls and the buttress is that that big stone piece that comes out on the side and supports the wall because they would build the walls really thin, right? at least for the day they were really thin and so the buttress gives it that support that it needs. The thin wall lets you put really beautiful stained glass in there. right? That's what's so kind of remarkable about that architecture but that buttress is that big thing that holds the whole thing up. So what does Paul say? The church, which is This pillar and this buttress of truth, it's a part of the whole kind of flying cathedral roof that is the glory of God's truth in this world. Yeah, it's not all of it, but as Christians, it's really a shame when we denigrate the church. When we treat it as though it's just a voluntary association, it's like, well, I, might as, I could go to the Lions Club or the Rotary Club or I could go down and have brunch on Sunday morning or I guess I could go to church if that's what does it for me today. Right? No, the church is, it is that place in which God has chosen to tabernacle with us. And yes, it's broken. And yes, it's corrupt. And yes, it's full of hypocrites. Well, it's not full of hypocrites. We've got room for plenty more hypocrites if they want to come in. It's a broken group. We are a broken group of people. But that doesn't make it any less true that this is the household of God. Here's the thing. I've heard it said before, and I stand by it. The more you love humanity, the less you love your neighbor. Right? The more you love humanity in the abstract, the more you're just a a good-hearted, good-willed person who doesn't want to see anything bad happen, the more difficult it is to love the actual version of humanity next to you who plays their music too loud. It's really easy for me to love humanity when it's across an ocean or two. It's really hard for me to love humanity when their chickens won't stop crowing, I guess they're roosters. Won't stop crowing. I live in the country now. I know the difference between a chicken and a rooster. Right? Yeah, a head and a rooster. Okay, I'm being scolded by the chicken mom over here. <laughs> <coughs> or their dog won't stop barking. Or they won't take in their trash cans. Or they—I mean, whatever the thing is, right? And yet, Jesus never says to us to love humanity. He tells us to love our neighbor the person who actually lives next to us. And, and this is the church problem. Because the church problem is I want to be a part of the household of God. I want to be a part of the kingdom. I want to be a part of that great cloud of witnesses. But I don't want to deal with the people who actually gather every Sunday morning down the street from me. I don't want to deal with the difficulty or the lack of organization or the fact that they don't text back. I really wish the carpet was a different color. I really wish the songs were sung better. I really wish the preaching was at a higher level. We can find all kinds of reasons not to engage. And yet Jesus simply says, love your neighbor as they are, not as you want them to be. And love means desire the best for them. Desire God's best for them, not your best for them. And so this is the challenge that we find ourselves in. Because we are called to the church. Every Christian is called to the church, to the body of Christ. And yet when we show up, it can be so tough. Every Christian's, every disciple's proper home is in the household of God, which the New Testament tells us is the church. What happens in a household? A household, according to everything, <laughs> is where families live. right? And families, unlike other organizations, are informal. Families often give each other permission to speak up, to say, that's wrong, that's right, you need to cut that out, you need to keep that going. Right? And families, interestingly, are oriented to the thriving of their members. What do you want for the people in your family? Most of us don't have like a business-driven mission statement for our family to continue to drive profits every quarter, right? That's not what families are for. Families are for thriving, that people would be doing well. When we check in on each other, how's your family? How are your kids? Oh, they're doing well. What does that mean? Could mean all kinds of things. They're doing great at sports. They're learning to read. They just were able to drive, right? They got their first job. They had their first kid. They had their first grandchild. They're reading and praying well. I mean, it could mean all kinds of things. Thriving is this big, wide open picture that's given by us, given to us by God to say that we are freed and empowered to love God with all that we have. That we are developing our capacity to love, that we are growing in virtue. And so let me see if I can pull all this together. Maybe I can, maybe I can't. <laughs> it's just to say that the church is at the heart of God's vision for the world. And the church is at the heart of God's vision for you as a disciple. That we are bound together in the body of Christ, learning to love one another, because as we learn to love one another, we discover how well we either do or don't love Jesus. For many, we've discarded the church because the church is broken, and it is. But it's still the place that God has called us to be. We believe and we confess that at Jesus' return, the church is going to be the first thing that he puts back together. It's going to be the first thing that he heals. And through the church, Jesus will heal all of creation, and that will be a wonderful and a good day. But I'd love for you to maybe reflect in your own growth, in your own life. I mean, most of you have been here more than a few months, so I think I know the answer. But are you a Benedictine? Are you a sticker? Are you somebody that God calls to growth by saying, hang out, be stable, Figure out how to love the people around you. Or are you a wanderer? Are you somebody that the Lord calls to kind of, you know, place to place and to be able to hold those connections lightly? Not because, <coughs> not because you can't be trusted with long-term commitments or something like that, but because in your holding those connections lightly, you witness to the glory of God who is in all places. Both of these are wonderful ways to approach God. But if we get them confused, boy, we're in trouble. Right? If we get them mixed up, we're in a tough place. So I invite you just to think about that this week. How has God called me to live in this world? To stability or to radical trust? And then further, I'd say, how does that spirituality serve the church? How does that spirituality serve church? This household of God that the Lord has called us to as we grow in discipleship. These are questions and not really answers. But as we explore what discipleship is, I'd I'd encourage you to embrace some of those questions. To know and believe that God is at work even when we don't have hard, crystal clear answers. Let me read for you just. This little bit from Galatians 6, and we'll wrap up here. This is Galatians 6, 6 to 10. Let the one who is taught the word. Oh, I'm not going to read the part about paying pastors. You guys already do that well. (laughs) Chapter 6, verse 7 to 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption you would enable us to seek you, to know you, to love you in this place, in the places that you have called us. Lord, that you'd help us to see ourselves well. Are we a people who are called to hold the world lightly? Or a people who are called to stick and to belong? Lord, we pray for your vision of our own lives, that we would be open and able, Lord, to seek and to know, to love, and to serve you. Father, we pray for this church as over the last few months we have blessed quite a few people to go elsewhere. May we be a people, Lord, who live with open hands, trusting that you are the one who gives us life, that our life is not in our ability to keep people here. Lord, our life is in our ability to see, to know, to love, and to serve you. May we be a trusting people who live according to your grace. We ask all this in your name. Amen.